Hello again, this is Luke. Welcome back. It's episode two of the Luke Turner podcast. And today I'll be discussing brain computer interfaces. So this is a topic that I've been very interested in for quite a while now. And I did a little presentation on this at work a few weeks ago and it went over pretty well. So I thought I'd do a bit of a recap as a bit of an introduction to brain-computer interfaces and what they're all about. Um, Any feedback is greatly appreciated. So, let's get started. So, by the end of this podcast, I hope that you have a bit of a better understanding about BCIs or brain-computer interfaces and how they work on some level. Some examples of how they're used in the real world at the moment. Uh, and then some considerations of how they could be used in future as well, and also some ethical considerations along the way. So essentially, brain-computer interfaces is any device that performs either input or output from the brain to a computer. So that's either reading electrical signals from the brain to be processed by a computer, or using a computer to actually write information to the brain via electrical stimulation. And so we need to understand a little bit about how the brain works in order to understand this technology. So essentially we have billions and billions of cells in our brain called neurons and they transmit information between each other and this information is a chemical message which is known as neurotransmitters. So you might have heard of dopamine, serotonin, things like this. So these are examples of neurotransmitters. And when that happens, there's an electrical charge in the brain. So there's actually an electrical potential that determines whether or not a neuron will fire. And there's about 86 to 100 billion neurons, depending on who you ask, in a human brain. So it's quite a complex arrangement. And so tackling this sort of technology is quite a task. So some common uses that we have at the moment, medical treatment and research is probably the main one. So they're very, very useful for learning about Alzheimer's, epilepsy, concussions, these sorts of neurological issues. Uh, And these these conditions may present certain neural patterns in the brain that can be studied uh, and interpreted by a computer for early prevention and research for cures. There's many other examples of how BCIs are used at the moment. Uh, One is cognitive enhancement. So we have EEG, which is uh, electroencephalography, uh, for neurofeedback. So essentially, we wear a brain-computer interface, uh, a non-invasive one, on the head, and we track your performance when you're performing a task. So let's say playing a game. And that performance is presented to you in real time. And so you're able to alter your actions based on what your brain output is actually saying. So it's a very effective way to learn. It's also very useful in psychopathology and psychotherapy. So using biofeedback for mood and anxiety disorders is quite a common treatment. Uh, So maybe presenting someone with a certain stimulus that might provoke some anxiety in a safe environment, Uh, seeing how the brain reacts and then giving some sort of visual or maybe oral indication of what's going on so that the user can learn to predict and detect when they are in those states 
and train themselves to have healthier responses over time. So there's different sort of types of BCIs. So the first level is non-invasive. So this is sort of a, a headset that you would wear, uh, completely non-invasive, no insertion into the brain required. It's just a series of sensors that are placed on your scalp. And so these are trying to measure electrical potentials that are sent from the brain, uh, which is the cheapest and safest way to do it. The problem is that it's a fairly low level of detail because it's blocked by bone and other things in your skull. Um, and so this can be improved by adding more of the electrodes, uh, more of these sensors onto your scalp. Uh, but this can be quite expensive and time consuming. So it's a bit of a trade-off between the invasiveness and the level of output that we get. One example is Emotive, you may have heard of. It's a consumer application, uh, mainly used for meditation. Uh, and so people use it for meditation, stress reduction. There's an app that goes along with it. It detects different types of brain waves and it lets you know whether or not you're in a meditative state, for example. And so you can come in and out of this state and have a representation of whether or not you are. And ideally, it will keep you there for longer. One example of a BCI that we have in society now is the cochlear implant, which essentially attempts to repair hearing loss by bypassing the damaged portions of the ear. So we have a small processor that's placed on the outside of the ear with a transmitter, and then there is a receiver on the inside of the scalp. This essentially bypasses the part of the ear that may be damaged and attaches directly to the brain waves that will process the sound. Uh, and so this has been an effective treatment for quite some time, and it's a very impressive use. If we go a little bit deeper, we have semi-invasive technologies. So there are electrodes that are placed on the exposed surface of the brain in a grid-like formation. And you do have to remove part of the scalp and part of the, the skull to get this level of detail. Um, <clears throat> so it's usually just used in extreme cases like people with severe epilepsy and that sort of thing so that they can detect exactly what's going on before someone has a seizure so that they can prevent it in future. But this is really good because it's resistant to noise such as movements from your eye, muscle movements, um, things that can disturb the, the patterning and make the data hard to comprehend. Then finally, we have invasive technologies. So you might have heard of Neuralink and similar companies doing this sort of thing. So this is where a very, very small grid of electrodes gets planted deep into the brain, inside the brain tissue. And it's very accurate. So we can read up to the level of about a thousand neurons at a time. So ideally, over time, we could develop these technologies to get to a point where maybe even all areas of the brain are being tracked at all times in a very, very high level of detail. So this way, we can really understand what's happening in the human experience uh, in, in, in times of stress, in times of calm, in healthy patients, in patients with neurological damage. I think there are many, many uses. So... Elon Musk's company Neuralink is a great example of a company that's doing this right now. Um, so they have 
brain chips that are implanted by robots that are at the level of thousands of neurons. So there are about 1,024 electrodes. So each one of those could have about 1,000 neurons that it can detect information from. So we're looking at about a million neurons, which is still quite low considering the amount of neurons in a human brain, but it's uh, a really good start. And according to them, it's supposedly safe to insert and remove. Um, they had some demonstrations with pigs that had uh, reading read information coming from their brains as they were walking on treadmills and eating food in their live demonstration. Uh, and they seemed to be behaving normally. There was also a pig that had the chip removed from its brain and this pig also seemed to be safe and healthy. But I think time will tell in terms of more data that we need uh, and additional safety considerations before we can figure out if this is a viable thing that a human could have in its brain uh, and remove from its brain as well. So there are also other types of technologies that are emerging now. Uh, OpenBCI, for example, is an open source company that is developing brain technology and they're looking at integrating not only brain reading technology, but other physiological states. So measuring the heart movements, the skin, the muscles, and the eyes, as well as the brain, to create a physiological profile of what's happening in a person at a given time. And this will also integrate with virtual reality. So a user would be using virtual reality, and these metrics would be tracked in real time. And you could alter the virtual reality game uh, to suit their needs, to make it harder, to make it easier. Whatever the outcome is that you're trying to achieve, you could get, in theory, a high level of detail in order to make that outcome as tailored to each person as possible. So there's also this idea of a connectome, which is essentially a one-to-one -one mapping of a human brain in a computer. And this is an extremely complex task because the brain just simply has so many neurons and it's such a complicated network. And not only mapping all their positions, but how they talk to each other is almost infinitely complex uh, and would require some very powerful computing and some very well-tailored AI algorithms. However, we have built a connectome in other animals. So in a worm brain, for example, uh, there are only 300 neurons. And so this is about 7,000 connections or synapses between those neurons. And we were able to map out a worm brain. And some researchers actually downloaded this information from a worm brain and they put it into a robot. And without any instruction, the robot just started acting like a worm. And it was running into walls, crawling around, doing its thing. And this is... <laughs> A, a chilling but exciting and intriguing example of what may be to come. Some limitations and challenges that we face with BCIs at the moment is mainly a computing power bottleneck. Um, so like I mentioned, for a human connectome to be a reality, we would need a very, very powerful computer to be able to map all those synapses. Uh, also, generalizable models of neural data is a, is a real challenge because everyone's brain is so unique. It would be very, very difficult to have a one-size-fits-all software solution or a hardware solution uh, in terms of a headset 
that would work for everyone and would deliver outcomes for everyone. There's also a lot of public perceptions and fears surrounding BCIs, some of which I think are perfectly valid uh, because there are a lot of potential dangers. You know, what if someone could hack into your brain or there was a software update downloaded to your brain chip that came in real time and there was a bug in it and you just started freaking out and killing people or doing something like that. Um, these things are absolute possibilities, but I would hope that the software is developed in such a way that it is open source and people can understand, comprehend the safety of the code and the safety of the hardware before they choose to augment themselves or, yeah, implant themselves. So that was a little introduction to BCIs, brain-computer interfaces, something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, I would like to get some guests on soon who work in this field uh, and learn a little bit more about their perspective and maybe what they've been developing uh, because I think that this is actually something that's going to change the way that we live in the future um, and it's sort of just beginning now and I, I, I'm very keen to be a part of it and see it progress and unfold. So thank you very much for listening. Until next time, I'm Luke Turner. Bye-bye.